Thanks, Jim. Uh, I, was, uh, I was listening to a, a guy give a talk this morning, a brief talk, and he told a, he told a joke about deer hunting, and I, thought I, and I thought I would tell it to you guys because, you know, some people here like to deer hunt. So there's uh, these three guys, uh, two guys from the church took their preacher out deer hunting, and uh, you know, they're walking, walk, just walking out to the stands, you know, walking out to the blinds, and a deer jumped up, big old buck, and pow, 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 all three guys shot. You know, and so they got it, and they went over and looked at it, and nobody could decide who killed it. And they started arguing about it, you know, and it got kind of hot. And then all of a sudden, a game warden drove up. And the game warden says, what's going on? They said, oh, you know, we shot this deer. We can't decide who killed it. And the game warden says, let me look at it, because I'll make an official determination, and I'll tell you who killed this deer. And so the game warden goes up, he looks at it, and he says, yeah, the preacher killed it. And, he, and, they got, and one of the deacons from the church said, how do you know? How do you know? He said, because the bullet went through one ear and out the other. <laughs> so, uh, you know, hopefully that won't be the way the sermon goes this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I wish you would turn to Romans chapter 1, verses, verse number 18. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse number 8. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to the Roman Christians and he is telling them that he wants to come to them and preach the gospel to them in Rome. He tells them in verses 16 and 17 that what he wants to preach when he gets there is the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Nothing's going to prevent, prevent me from it. I've been preaching it all over the place and I'm coming to Rome to preach it to you. And so the people, he's writing to people who are Christians. Two Christians. Now, this is something you got to guard against as a Christian. Sometimes as a Christian, you will go to a, a preaching service and the pastor will, you can tell he's about to preach the gospel and because you already know the gospel, you might tend to be, not again. Well, we have to guard ourselves against that because the gospel is good news to sinners and it's good news to Christians. The, reasons, the reason Christians should really enjoy hearing the gospel is because it reminds them and it affirms to them once again that in spite of their sinfulness, they are saved through grace and faith in Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, I've been a Christian a long time, and I know that in the past week, I have committed enough sins to damn my soul to hell if I went to heaven based upon performance. We're saved by grace through the gospel, through the good news. The gospel is good news. I guess in my lifetime, I've heard this, this terminology. It's, it's appeared. It wasn't, it wasn't common in the churches where I grew up, but it's, it's pretty common now amongst a certain sect of churches where preachers will say to Christians, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You think, what in the world? Preach the gospel to myself? I'm not even ordained. What does that mean, preach the gospel to myself? It means that you and I as Christians, we need to be constantly reminding ourselves that we are saved not through our works. If you remember each misdeed, if you are keeping track of every thought, then who could stand before you? Who could enter into God's presence if God knows everything we see, think, and do? And mostly it's the thinking part where we do the most of our sinning. It's only by grace alone that we can stand before the holy God. 
So the gospel, so Paul says, I'm coming there there to preach the gospel to you in Rome. And then in verses 18 to 13, the apostle tells the Romans why I'm coming there to preach it. The gospel is important. We need to keep that in the forefront of our mind, that the most important message that you can hear and that I can hear or that the world can hear is the gospel. And then in verses 18 to 13, Paul, he says, I'm going to preach the gospel. And then he sets this diamond of the gospel on a background of complete black to really show how beautiful the gospel is. I guess maybe, uh, I, was, I guess it was last year or, so, or something, when Valerie and I got married, you know, I was, I was, I was poor. Anybody, anybody else was poor when you got married? And, I, and I'm still kind of poor, in case you, were, you wondered. <laughs> well, I, but I went down and I bought her, a, I bought her an engagement ring. Because I wanted to marry her, you know, and I, cause, because I was a, a real live redneck dude, I went down. I sold a couple guns <laughs> so I could buy a wedding, so I could buy an engagement ring for Valerie. And so I went in there and I had a few hundred bucks. <clears throat> I sold the dude. I said, "Hey, man," I said, "I want to, I want to." I said, "How much ring can I get for this much money?" You know, and the news was not good. The news was not good. And so he said, I figure you can get, it was, it was a very small cut of diamond. I don't remember the, the size of it. It was very small. But it was, they had the different cuts of diamonds. Have you guys noticed that? They have different shapes of diamonds. They got like the square. They got the, uh, the traditional round. I don't know. And then they have this one that's kind of flat and long. I think it's called a marquee cut. Is that right, ladies? A marquee cut. And the guy showed me the, I, I want to say it was one-eighth of a carat which is, you know, almost not a diamond. <laughs> One-eighth of a carat. He showed me the round one. That sucker was microscopic. And he said, now listen, let me show you this. He showed me a one-eighth carat diamond ring in a marquee cut. It looked twice as big. It was half as thick, but it was twice as long. And I thought, that's the one. So I put it in my pocket, you know, and I wrote Valerie a note, and I made an acrostic for the word ring because I'm so, I'm so brilliant. I, I sent her a note, and the acrostic for the ring for the for the for the for the word ring was "ring I now got." <laughs> ring I now got, and so I sent her a note, and then you know I told her I'm going to ask you to marry me, and finally I asked her to marry me, and we got married. And so this past year, we went down to the jewelry store, and I bought her a nicer a nicer ring to take the place of that one. And we went in there, and you know the. The girl, she said, we told her what we, were, what we were up to, you know, and had a, had, a, had a pocket full of cash this time, but it was more cash. And I went in there, and I said, okay, we want to buy this ring. And they showed us all the diamonds. And I said, no, I like that one. Valerie, she wanted to go with something smaller. And I said, nope, we already did the small ring. It's a little bigger this time. So this time I went to uh, two-eighths of a carat. <laughs> we, were, we, we, went, we went bigger this time. And with the girl, she got the ring out and she set it down on a on a on a little piece of a little little finger, little fake finger sticking out of a black pad. And that surrounded by that black with that light shining down made that diamond just sparkle and just look so pretty. And so what Paul does in verses 18 to 32 is he shows the world in such horrible blackness and sets upon it the diamond of the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This diamond of the gospel. Paul starts off in verse 18 by telling the Romans why the world is such a mess. Now pay close attention to the reading, verses 18 to 32. The wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity or faithfulness, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree. That those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. What a collection of words. What a collection. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Paul tells us in verse 18, by telling, he starts off by telling the Romans that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against wicked, the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by doing wickedly. Don't miss this. You see, people, they know God. They know God is real. They know he is the creator, but they reject him. They reject him, but they cannot get him out of their heads. Have you ever went somewhere and did a business deal or had some kind of exchange with somebody and you know, turned them down or walked away from some experience? But while you're walking away, that experience, that contact is in your mind and you go home, you're driving home in your car, you're thinking about it. You're, you're at home peeling potatoes or washing the dishes and you're thinking about it. You're crawling into bed, you're thinking about it. You wake up in the morning, you're taking a shower, you're thinking about it. It's in your mind. You're like, I can't get that out of my mind. I wish I could get free from that. This is what God has done. Man knows there is a God 
Every person who says they're an atheist and they don't believe in God, they're lying to you. They know there is a God, but they choose to suppress that internal, hardwired knowledge of God. They suppress the truth. They don't like the truth. And because they don't like the truth, they have to excite themselves and entertain themselves so completely so that they can drive God from their mind. Have you ever had a real bad problem? I've had some bad problems. And, when I, and since, since, since I'm a man and my brain doesn't work like a woman's brain, I can go and fill my, fill my hours with activity or some problem, and I forget all about my problems. But Valor and I, we've been, we've been married for a long time, and it doesn't look like ladies have that luxury because they can think about a hundred things at once. I mean, Valerie, she manages our, our family finances. She pays all the bills, you know. That's why she got a big ring. <laughs> she, she manages all the family bills. She, she manages the menu. Brothers, never, make, never, never take that for granted. The menu planning is a trip. Because it's not just saying we're going to have fried chicken, you know, and fish this week or steak. It's how do you do that exactly? You gotta have potatoes, you gotta have all these cans of vegetables, green beans, and whatnots. You gotta you gotta have all the, the ingredients to make all these recipes. I've been it's just she does all these things. Keeps all the plates spinning, keeps me happy, keeps the kids happy, keeps <laughs> her mind can think about a lot of things. And you're late and the ladies in your lives and you ladies, you know that's true for you too. Your your mind can go down many lanes at once. And people who deny that there is a God, they, they try to fill their mind with things. They want to get God out of their minds. I don't know if you guys like Tom T. Hall, but I hope you do. <laughs> Tom T. Hall in his song, The Ballad of $40, is a song about Tom going down and he's digging a grave for somebody that he knows. And the song says, <laughs> they got me and Fred and Joe to come and dig the grave and carry up some chairs. And he said, we must have spent seven hours digging that grave. And we must have drank a case of beer while we're digging it. And he says, I'd like to go over and hear the service because he knows the guy who died. But, he says, when they talk about the fires in hell, well, I get spooked. And I don't want to hear about it. So he stays away from the funeral. Because even though he's trying to keep God out of his mind, God penetrates all the time. God's always poking through and saying, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am. I'm here. I'm here. Man wants to get God out of their mind, so they suppress the truth. They suppress it by doing wicked deeds. But the question is, why would people reject God? Why would so many people work so hard to get God out of their minds? I mean, God is so nice and he's so sweet. He's so merciful and he's so gentle and gracious. Why would anybody want to push God out of their mind? Verse 21 tells us, They knew God, but they chose not to glorify him or to express gratitude to him. Why would they do that? Why would people who have been exposed to God, who know God, why would they refuse Him? They do it because they don't like God. They don't like God because as God, He reminds them that He is worthy of their obedience and of their submission. And they don't like it. They don't like 
God because he says, I am the Lord. This is the way you're supposed to live. I am holy and I want you to be holy or else. And it makes people mad. You know the number one way to cause problems in any situation? Make a rule. Make a rule. I was pastoring a church in southern Arkansas, and uh, we had a choir in that church, you know, and, and I got tired of seeing the choir not matching every Sunday. I thought they were all looking kind of sloppy up there. So I decided I'm going to tell all the men in the choir, all you guys got to wear a tie when you sing in the choir. That's a good rule, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I went, I, went, I went to this, I went to a, I, I told all the guys in the choir, I said, I want everybody, all you guys got to wear a tie next Sunday if you're going to sing in the choir. Guess what? I lost a bunch of dudes. A lot of guys were like, I don't want to sing in the choir if I got to wear a tie. And so I was talking to an older preacher the next week at a preacher's meeting, and I said, hey, man, I, had this, got this, I got this choir, and I want everybody to look nice, and I told all the guys, you got to wear a tie, and some of the guys got mad at me, and he said, oh, Terry, never, never, never make rules in your church. I said, why? I said, we've got to have some rules. He said, because rules just cause problems. Rules just cause problems. But you see, God has rules, doesn't he? God has a law. God has laid down the law. Now, in that situation, it was, it was Terry's law versus, you know, my laws don't matter. And if you don't want to wear a tie to church, that's fine, because I don't wear one either. Amen? <laughs> People don't like having the law laid down to them. Have you experienced this with your teenagers sometimes? Teenagers are, are fascinating people. Because you can, you, 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 you can lay down the law to a teenager, and instantly they kind of stiffen up a little bit. They don't really care for that kind of exercise, for that kind of, they don't, they don't like that. But, but if you talk to them, if you reason with them, you know, my grandpa was like this. My grandpa would speak in Proverbs. He wouldn't tell me not to do something. He would tell me a story. He'd kind of go a long way around the barn to tell me stuff. He would just speak in Proverbs to me. Try to help me see. You know, let me tell you about something that happened to me one time. That kind of a thing. Reasoning with them. Now, are there times you've got to lay down the law to your kids? Are there times? Sure. You have to lay down the law sometimes. But sometimes it causes problems. You've seen that. So when you say to, when God says to man, here I am, that's the way I want it to be, man does not like that. You see, the Bible reminds us that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that you and I, by nature, we do all kinds of evil things. By nature. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that God made man right but that man became a schemer. In Psalm 58, verse 3, it says that man, men, and women, they go astray from the womb, speaking lies as soon as they be born. I've had five kids. I didn't have to teach any of them to lie or steal or do mean things to their brothers and sisters. Didn't have to do it to any of them. It's in their nature. People are this way now. They are God-rejectors. People are sinful, they're wicked. And they've been that way since Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Remember, it was Adam and Eve, our first parents, they decided to dishonor and disobey God in the Garden of Eden. Now when you read this section here, chapter 18, verses 18 to 32 of Romans 1, 
the question always comes to my mind is, when did this take place? Because you have God here, he's giving people over. He says, they did this, and so God does this. This cause and effect. And the question in my mind is, when did this happen? When did God give them over? Some people say that in this section, that Paul is describing the way it was before the flood. Other people say that Paul is describing what it was when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. But the reality of this rejection is that the rejection of God by mankind happens over and over again. It's ongoing in every age, in every generation, in every family. There are people who are refusing to submit to God. And the consequence of that is they're being given over. They're being given over to greater and greater sinfulness. Some of you are even doing it right now. No one knows it but you and God, but you're doing it. You say, well, how am I doing it exactly? Well, the first way you do it is by not repenting of your sins and believing the gospel. Because you refuse to repent of your sins and believe the gospel, you are going to get worse and worse and worse. You will pursue and entertain greater and greater sins. Now, some of these sins are behavioral sins, and some of them are ideological sins. Sins in the mind. Sins in the mind. If you look at the Old Testament, if you look at Cain and Abel, you'll see that Cain, he rejected the right worship of God. And God said to him, God came to Cain and said, Cain, if you'll worship me rightly, it will be well for you. And Cain's response to this was not, okay, God, I'll do what you want. Cain's response was to leave God, was to reject God. Cain went from that place, from that conversation with God. He went out from that meeting. He found his brother Abel, who was a true worshiper of God. And what did Cain do to his brother Abel? He killed him. You see, Cain went from rejecting God, a sin, to a greater sin of killing his brother. To killing his brother. You just get worse. This is what you see in Romans. If you keep on rejecting God, you're going to get worse. Now in this section, when you look at verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And those of us who are Bible scholars or those of you who are Bible readers, you may think, well, this is talking about some kind of final judgment in the end. It's, coming, it's, going, it's going to come from heaven. And that's true. In the last day, God is going to destroy this world with wrath from heaven. But this wrath of God here is different. You see, the wrath of God is demonstrated in many different ways. If you read the Old Testament, you come to Genesis chapter 6, and there's this thing called the flood. It was a global outpouring of God's wrath that killed everyone on earth except for eight people. Some people say that in the flood, God destroyed, with the waters of the flood, he destroyed a billion or more people and only saved eight. Think of that. A billion or more people. That was one form of God's wrath. But that was not the first time God's wrath was poured out. God's wrath had already been poured out before that. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God said to Cain to Adam and Eve, He said, what, don't eat that tree. Don't eat the fruit of that particular tree. And He said, in the day that you eat thereof, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen? You're going to die. Did they eat of the tree? Did they die? Yes. They say the Hebrew there could be rendered, they're dying, dying, dying. They died, they became dead to God in that moment. Their bodies began to die, and they died toward each other. Dying, dying, dying. That was wrath, that was a judgment poured out. When God dealt with Cain, after Cain killed his brother, God poured out his wrath upon Cain. 
This is striking. God said to Cain, you're going to be a wonder in the whole world. You're never going to find rest. Every man's hand is going to be against you. And you say, well, how bad could that be? You know what Cain said? Cain said, that punishment is greater than I can bear. Wrath poured out. Wrath poured out. God's wrath is poured out in various ways. As you read the Old Testament, you see it over and over. And then when you get to the New Testament, you see that the world we live in is headed for final, ultimate wrath. It's laid up, it's planned, and it's coming, and you can be sure of that. But there are other ways that God's wrath is poured out too. And that's what Paul describes here in this section. If you look look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore... You have the action of man in verses 18 to 22, and then verse 24, therefore God does this. Therefore God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to these things. So there's God's wrath being poured out. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. He goes through it again. There again, God's wrath is poured out in 24 and 25, poured out again in 26 and 27, and then in verses 28 through 32, furthermore. Furthermore, because they did not retain God in their knowledge, these things come upon them. You see, the world that we live in, with its many corruptions, is this way because of divine judgment. The reason the world is a mess is not because God can't control it. <laughs> The reason this world is a mess is because of judgment. It's judgment. It's the wrath of God poured out. John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them bad leaders. Bad leaders. Now, now look, don't get mad at me for what I'm about to say. Everybody promise not to get mad at me? All in favor of promising, say aye. Whoa. <laughs> Nobody said I, so I don't think I can say this next thing. You guys just messed up my sermon. Steve, thank you. I love you, Steve. <laughs> Greatest man I've known. <laughs> In 2016, our two choices for president were Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. In what world? That, neither one of those choices are good. Donald Trump, one of my friends told me, said, he said, Donald Trump... Own strip joints. And we know about Hillary Clinton because I listened to Rush Limbaugh as a kid. <laughs> Those were your two choices. Those were your two choices. In 2020, we had Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Friends, the choices, the choices were not that great. We all had to make a choice, but neither choice was that great. You see, the world we live in is a mess. It's God's wrath. We're, ne- we're never again going to have the caliber of politicians in this country that we've had in the past to lead us. We're never going to have those people again because our nation is under wrath. And when God judges a nation, we read the Old Testament. When Israel turned against God and went to gross idolatry, what kind of kings did God give them? Bad ones. Wrath. Charles Hodge says this. Charles Hodge was an American theologian, lived in the early part, the last part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. Charles Hodge says this. Sometimes God punishes one sin by allowing allowing people to pursue another sin. 
It is one step lower and lower until the person is totally enslaved by their passions because they refuse to love God with all their passion. Just lower and lower and lower. You see, it is is because man rejected God. God said, okay, you don't want me? Go ahead and live without me and see how you like that world. And the result is the world in which we live today. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this name, but there's a man, he's a Russian. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He wrote a book called the Gulag Gulag Archipelago. If you get a chance to take a look at that book, there's a really long version of it, and there's a condensed version of it. Read the condensed version or listen to it on Audible and hear him describe true accounts of what the communists did to their own citizens, not to Christians, but just to each other. And in that book, he catalogs the behavior of a government and its citizens who rejected God. That book is a chronicle of the most barbaric things you can imagine, things really done in real time in the modern era in the old USSR. Done by men to men, by women to women, by kids to kids. And as one reads those pages, you ask yourself, how could it be this way? How could people become so vile? And how could they become so good at being so bad? It's because their world, Their government, their communities, their leaders rejected God and the people approved it. They wanted a world without God and what you got was the gulag system. Horrible things. This is an aside. I'll just tell it to you because it's it's not 12.30. (laughs) It's 11.30. On Amazon. Do you guys have Amazon? Amazon Prime. We got Amazon Prime. It's not a sin. Don't worry. (laughs) they had this uh, documentary on there about China and their one child policy one child policy because in China for for years up until recently you don't have one child and they had people there interviewing people on there who were a part of the one child system one lady in one Chinese province she said herself she was like she'd be like a, like a nurse practitioner today she said i participated personally in the forced abortion abortions and forced sterilizations of at least 60,000 women that's one woman in one province that's one career of one woman she she showed on on the walls in her little apartment she had all these awards for all the ways for all the people abortions she had committed Awards for doing so many of them. For sterilizing women against their will. That's just one woman in one province. But there were hundreds and thousands of these people doing these things in China. How does a country get so bad? They rejected God. And it just gets worse. And my friends, if our country continues to reject God, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. You say, well, where's the joy and hope in that? (laughs) There ain't none. That's the bottom line. But you have to expect it. You have to expect it. That's what the Bible says. Now, if you bring it down to you personally, if you personally reject God, that's where, that's, where it all, that's where you're going to feel it the most. You're going to get worse and worse. 
if you read this section of Romans 24 through 32, it sounds like America. It sounds like our country. Look at the scope of the sins in there. And it's not just you say, well, you know, I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm not going to practice same-sex stuff. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm not going to sleep around or smoke dope or any of those things. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. But look, the reading here even says this. Look at verse 30. Last part of 29, first part of 30. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. That's a big scope. It's not just the really big things. It's all the small things too. The wrath of God is poured out. How far does this go? Who's affected by this? Well, in brief, everybody's affected by it. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 29, Paul says that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of these things. No one is exempt because of their ethnicity or family heritage. And then in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, it says that there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and gone our own way. There's none that seek God. There's none who fear Him, in verse 18. You say, well, now what? The world's a mess. Everything's, everything's all out of whack. God's wrath is being poured out in different ways. Okay, so now what? Well, now, this is the world to which Paul came preaching the gospel. That's What Paul describes was his, the world as he currently lived in. His own current dark world. And to that dark world, Paul comes with what? Does he come with, with moral causes? Does he come with a political platform and say, vote this way and do these things? Is that what he comes with? No, no. What does he come with? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel. The gospel. You see, it is to the God-rejecting heathen that Paul comes with good news. It is to a world of corrupt professional sinners that God has sent good news. You see, God is not only wrathful towards this fallen world, God is also merciful to the wrathful people. To the people who, is, who have been sinning against Him, God is merciful. He has come to sinful man. And because God is good, God must punish sin. If God did not punish sin... He, wouldn't, he would be evil himself. He cannot let crimes go unpunished. But God has come with the gospel because the gospel tells us that God punished one man so that whoever believes in him could be delivered from what they deserve. God has done something fabulous. He has sent salvation into the world. Salvation from wrath that we deserve. Paul comes to sinful people. And you know, my friends, just in case... If you ever get the opportunity to read anything about Roman culture, the the Roman world, you'll know that America is is right now nearly exactly like it was in ancient Rome. And then what's going on in our culture? Nearly just like it. You know in the Roman Empire, they had patriarchal authority, and so like the grandpa of a family, any male child born in that family... Grandpa could decide whether that kid lived or died up until he was three years old. Because by the time he was three years old, they knew if he had any brains or not. 
If the, if the kid was smart, they would let the kid live. If the kid was not lived, there were two things they would do. They would either just directly kill the kid or they would put the kid outside on the doorstep overnight. And whatever happened to him, happened to him. Somebody come by and take him. They call it abandoning. Just leave him out there. Well, you know, that, that was the Roman, that's the world Paul was preaching to. To those kind of sinners. Our kind of sinners. You see, in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, God tells us He has come to preach the gospel. In verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, Paul says, I'm coming there to preach the gospel, and it is through faith that you can be made righteous. The last part of verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. And then in verses 18 through 32, Paul tells us why we need the gospel. And then in Romans 3, Paul tells us that these benefits of the gospel are only because of something God did on our behalf. I want to take the time to read that. Look at chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God set forth Jesus. God crushed Jesus. God laid the sins of mankind on Jesus and crushed him and caused Jesus to suffer what we deserve so that all who believe in Jesus could be saved. It is to a world full of sinners that the gospel has come that says you can be saved, not by your own works, not by your own efforts, but you can be saved through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Think of this. You're a Roman person, a Roman patriarch, a grandpa, and you've presided over your family for years, and you have chosen that some of your grandchildren should not live, and you sanctioned their abandonment either to the wild or you yourself took the kid's life. And you hear the gospel, and the gospel has the negative part first. You're a sinner, and you deserve God's wrath. A man hears that, he feels condemned. The Holy Spirit convicts him of his sinfulness, he's smitten by it. And if you're a sinner, like I've been a sinner, there's times in your life when it's almost like a, like a movie reel of all your sins just gets played over in your mind, all these things you've done, brought back to you. What deliverance does that patriarch have? What hope does he have? Because the Bible says that whoever believes in him can be saved. Those sins can be forgiven by God. So in these early Roman churches, I mean, these these, these were not a bunch of Sunday school doilies getting saved and going to church. These were real-life sinners like you and me. Maybe worse. God has come and God has sent a diamond of good news, a spark of hope into a dark world. That's the gospel. 
And what caused God to do that? What caused God to be merciful to a world that's rejected him? Because God is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. I'm not going to do that. The mercy of God is what prompted him to bestow saving grace upon sinful man. God has decided to save man by his own desire, by his own determination. God's commitment to save us was not forced on him. He loved us before we were, before the world was, before the world's created. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they worked out our eternal salvation. And the Father's commitment to save sinners is proven by John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me give you four concluding things and we'll be done, all right? Four concluding things. Number one. The wrath of God has come and will come. There will be a full-powered, unfiltered fury that's going to come in the last day that will be poured out on the people of this world in which we live. You can read about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. I'm not going to take the time to read it because it's time to stop. But God's wrath is poured out right now, and there is a final future wrath coming. The authorized version says that Jesus Jesus will come in flaming vengeance. Flaming vengeance. Number two, the only way to escape the wrath that you deserve is through Jesus Christ. John 3, verse 36 says, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In Romans 9, it describes vessels fitted for wrath. Number three, final eternal wrath will be dispensed by Jesus. It will be dispensed by the man who could have been your Savior. Psalms chapter 2, verse number 12, it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Submit to Christ or face his wrath. Number four, right now you should acknowledge what you are. And then put your faith in Jesus to save you by calling on him to save you from a sincere heart. From a heart that knows what you are and knows you need saving. Put your faith in Jesus now. You say, look, I got this, I got this, I got this rich, horrible past. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sins. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sins. Put your faith in Jesus. You say, well, you don't really understand. You don't know how bad I am, how bad I have been, or how bad I wish I could be. I don't know, but God does. And he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Put your faith in Jesus while you can. Don't delay another minute. Don't delay another second. Do it right now. Submit to him. Call upon the Lord, and he'll save you. That's Romans 10, 9 through 13. For with the heart, man believes. And with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. For the same Lord over all is rich, is abundant to all who call upon him. God's already saved a bazillion sinners. And his power to save has not, has not become less by one second, by one bit. 
He'll save you. Let's pray together. Father, we've taken the time to preach this sermon. We entrust it to your care in Christ's holy name. Amen.